You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis and joining me to break down the week in media marketing is Olivia Crimmel. Hello, Damien. Callum Jaspin. Hi, Damien. And Emma Shepard. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Olivia will be speaking to ANZ Senior Manager, Customer Centricity and Capability, Kate Young, about the transformation of the marketing function at ANZ. And really saw a critical need to transform the marketing function. Why scaling personalization has become the key mission for the bank. Uh, we're really uh, you know, on a, on a mission at, um, at ANZ to ensure that we start to scale personalization as a capability. And how the business is future-proofing marketing staff to be top marketers. You know, certainly what we know is that the profile of a top performing marketer is absolutely changing. But first, the week's topics. The ACCC's Digital Advertising Services Inquiry final report dropped. Just how damaging is Google's dominance in the ad tech supply chain? Simon Ryan's Ryancap launches Tightrope in collaboration with Conrad Spilver and his Shadowboxer business and... TikTok boosts its attempts to appeal to mainstream marketers with new products. But before we get into it... This week's Mumbrella Cast is brought to you by Sesame. Being chased by the content beast? Get Sesame, the magic marketing platform that creates and shares branded content at scale in no time. Slaughter the content beast with Sesame now. Go to sesame.com, that's S-E-S-I-M-I dot com. Earlier this week, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission report into ad tech highlighted concerns and likely harms to publishers, advertisers and consumers as a result of Google's overwhelming dominance in the space. The report estimated that over 90% of ad impressions traded via the ad tech supply chain passed through at least one Google service and suggested there was a significant lack of transparency in the multiple areas, including pricing and operations. Emma, you reported on this on Tuesday. What new information came from this report and how significant are the findings? Yes, so the report cited that Google's dominance in the ad tech supply chain is underpinned by multiple factors, including its access to consumer and other data, um, access to exclusive infantry, uh, and integration across its ad tech services. Um, Also, key acquisitions by Google, including um, DoubleClick in 2007, AdMob in 2009, as well as YouTube in 2006, have helped Google entrench its position in ad tech. The report also stated that Google has used its position to preference its own services and shield them from competition. As an example, Google presents rival ad tech services from accessing ads on YouTube, providing its own ad tech services with an important advantage. Google has also refused to participate in publisher-led header bidding, um, an industry innovation aimed at increasing competition for publishers infantry and previously allowed its services to have a last look opportunity to outbid rivals. However, earlier in the month, Google did say its data does not give an unfair advantage in the the ad tech world. Google said its ad tech products have very limited use of individual user data from user-facing services when bidding for ads on third-party websites or apps. Yeah, it was a 202-page report full of heaps and heaps of detail, but the reality is here that 
at the end of the day, there's a lot of recommendations being made to try and change how ad tech works. And, and of course, Google uh, owns a large amount of, of the space at the moment. Uh, moment. But uh, let's be real about this. Uh, Liv, one for you. Does the ACCC really have the opportunity here to, to affect change in the ad tech space? You know, we are, after all, we're talking about Google, you know, the, the might of Google, which, uh, you know, we've spoken about this before, has taken years and years, decades to, to build up what it has. Can the government actually do anything about this? Yes, that's an interesting question, Damien. And I think you could look at this from two ways. I mean, firstly, we've seen the ACCC's uh, news media and digital platforms bargaining code result in change in the market. Um, Google and, to a lesser degree, Facebook have ended up paying millions and millions. We, we don't know the exact amount, but significant amount of money to publishers to placate them in regards to that and so it is possible to say that be, through certain channels, the ACCC is able to influence market activity. On the flip side of that, though, is that the ACCC's mandate about competition and, and ensuring competition, which it begs to question why was that not raised when these acquisitions by Google were made in the first instance, which in many cases is more than 10 years ago now. So it does sort of feel like they're playing catch up. And I think that this is going to be the challenge for the ACCC in terms of what they can actually do. Who are the, you know, viable competitors to to raise up against Google? Because I can't think of any. And in that regard, it's also going to be interesting to see what levers the ACCC has in this in this space as well because for the most part we're talking about a global industry here we're not just talking about an Australian specific industry and it it's all virtual as well which is the other key thing to keep in mind so whether or not the ACCC and, and Rod Sims in particular likes what's happening is one is one thing but whether or not they can actually do anything practical about it is quite the other I think what we're more likely to see actually is uh the government use other levers at their disposal such as tax to level the playing field um the only other thing I could think of them doing in in terms of you know really evening out the playing field would be to set quotas or to set minimums in terms of price but that goes against the nature of a competitive marketplace. So not really sure what Sims has in, in mind, but at the moment all they've done is prove that Google is a one-stop shop for all your ad service needs. Yeah, I've got this uh, constant image now of an auctioneer bidding on an auction uh, against themselves at, at the moment. <laughs> it's just, I just can't get it uh, out of my mind probably because, uh, you know, that's another big thing going on. Obviously, it's the property prices in Australia at the moment. But moving right along because that's not what yeah, we're talking about. Yeah, they should really look at that. <laughs> we we need some more regulation there at the moment. <laughs> we need so much more regulation, so much more regulation. But uh, like you say, maybe the horse is, uh, has bolted just slightly on, on this one. But uh, hey, unsurprisingly, shock horror, the uh, the industry wasn't super shy on her comment uh, about this one. The IAB and ADMA and a number of um, buyers came out with statements and, and thoughts as well. Emma, you covered a, a few of these. Any patterns in the comments? Anything interesting come to light? 
Definitely. I um, I spoke to IAB Australia's CEO, uh, Gay Leroy. She said there were quite a few implications for many aspects of the ed, ad tech sector. Um, and the IAB looks forward, uh, she says, to working constructively on behalf of the industry with government on the key issues it raises and continue to build confidence across the ad tech ecosystem. She said that ad tech industry is focused on consumer privacy and accountability in development of targeting measurement and attribution solutions. Uh, I also spoke to ADMA's head of regulatory, uh, Sala Fernando. She said the ad tech industry is a necessary stimulant to the entire Australian digital economy, be that consumers, advertisers and publishers. It's important that we do what we can to keep competitive and protect the consumer. Uh, ADMA advocates for uh, responsible marketing that is fair and transparent, fostering consumer trust, healthy competition and innovation. She said, whilst the size of the players can sometimes give the perception that their power and skill leads to misuse, uh, she does not believe this is automatically so. Moving right along. Next up, we are going to be speaking about Simon Ryan and Conrad Spilvert. They are working together again. Simon Ryan's indie holding group, Ryan Cap, launched Tightrope this week with significant investment from his ex-Dentsu colleague, Conrad Spilver's Shadow Boxer. The new business is advertised as a transformation consultancy and we'll see the pair working together again after significant rumors around a year ago that they may have been about to launch something then. Cal, it seemed like it was only going to be a matter of time before Ryan and Spilver joined forces how did this one come about and uh, what were the finer details? As you mentioned there, Demo, Simon and Conrad do have a bit of history together. Um, they were counterparts at Dentsu when Ryan was CEO of Carrot um, and Simon was then Conrad's boss when he took on the CEO role of Dentsu Aegis Network, now known as Dentsu International, when um, Conrad was at Isobar. Um, Conrad did reveal on the pod with yourself uh, last year that he was approached or offered Simon's job when he left at the back end of 2018. Um, Although his preference, I think, at the time was moving towards, uh, well, he said to me when I spoke to him yesterday that his preference was really to work under a single brand. And um, I guess that eventuating in what is now Shadowbox was something a lot more appealing to him. Um, The two are pretty close mates outside of just being colleagues and uh, I think they did discuss at at some length um, a joint venture following their departures with, uh, you know, the potential of Spilver coming on board with Ryan Cap. However, both with their own ambitions uh, decided to do their own thing. Um, And I did speak to both of them in the lead up to this podcast, as I said there, um, and the impression I got was this came about pretty organically, you know, the two meet up pretty regularly. um, And I think it it kind of fit into what both of them were doing with their own businesses. Uh, When Shadow Boxer was launched, Spilver also launched alongside that SB Ventures, which is the uh, venture arm of his business. Uh, and the aim of that was for Shadow Boxer to be able to um, have skin in the game, which was the term he used with the businesses that they are working with. So, you know, I guess it shows that they've got an investment in the projects that they're working on and they were helping build. So 
Spilver told me yesterday that this this is kind of directly focused on local businesses. So, so that's exactly what's happening here. And this is the first instance that um, SB Ventures has taken a stake in a service-based business, which is what um, Tightrope, the business that we're talking about here, is. Um, so what they did here was they helped with the brand proposition, with the go-to-market strategy, and also in bringing in um, in Stein DeVright, who is the uh, who's going to be running the show here. Um, and what will happen is Shadow Boxer, when needed, will bring in its own capabilities and vice versa. Um, and also is a minority stakeholder in the business while remaining. Um, so Tightrope's a bit of a coming together of old Dentsu alumni, as I mentioned, with Spilver launching Shadow Boxer with two ex Isobar colleagues and also ex Dentsu staff featuring pretty heavily at Ryan Cap's existing businesses, both Rival Media and Fox Catcher being led by ex Dentsu um, leads, those being P- Joseph Pardillo and David Gaskell. As I mentioned, Stein de Vrent, he comes across most recently from Accenture, um, where he was strategy direct- director. Um, it, from the sounds of it, getting him on board was a bit of a catalyst for the business to kind of come together and build around him of sorts. So, you know, there was the idea there, but then it, it was a bit of a coup getting Stein because um, from what I understand, he was about to be nabbed up by one of the big four consultancies. Um, he was very close to signing up there. So yeah, getting him on board has really kind of pulled the thing together. Yeah, and if there's anyone that uh, knows full well what it takes to get a, a startup going in the Adland space, it's definitely Conrad Spilver with uh, Visual Jazz all these years ago, I believe, starting from his bedroom with a, with a mate. So that's a, that was a, a pretty cool good news story um, from that side of things. But uh, it, Ryan mentioned uh, as well that this was sort of the missing piece of the puzzle with, with Ryan Cap, which has already sort of got tentacles in a few different areas. But what exactly does he mean by that, Cal, the, the, the missing piece of the still relatively young Ryan Cap uh, business? So when Ryan started up Ryan Cap last year, he he said he was quite specific in the aims of what he wanted for the business. So that was the aim of building an Australian holding company with three core capabilities. And those have been focused on tech, data and media, saying that he wanted to create or he wanted to, sorry, help businesses who want to thrive in the digital economy. And now alongside the digital marketing and media agency, Rival Media, as I mentioned, and also Foxcatcher, which is focused on um, marketing data and tech, he's really kind of built out those three core capabilities as he promised to do so. So I think the aim of this as a consultancy is to draw on both of these established businesses while also getting some of Shadowbox's expertise. And this is sort of part of what he he referred to me as a grand plan or a, a f- also a five-year plan, um, which does focus on these three areas. Um, and now that he's got those, I think what he really wants to do is just focus on expanding them in three core markets, those being Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane. So the Sydney office is imminent. Um, I don't believe that is so much of a, a secret as it is just waiting for things to open up. He said when we spoke the other day that he didn't want to be like other parent companies growing out 20 or so businesses over several years and then subsequently spending several years winding them back. don't know if this was a potential dig at his ex-employer, but uh, who knows. And and you'd like this one, Damo. He also joked that um, calling this the final piece in the Ryan Cap puddle 
puzzle, sorry, would be like an F1 driver saying it's his last race. Yeah, I, I do. I do like that one. I'd love to know which F1 driver specifically uh, <laughs> he's referring to in that case. But uh, look, a good question to, to end off here, and you might have a bit of information on, on this one. I guess if I was chatting to uh, to Simon, one of the first questions I would have asked personally would have been, um, "What exactly is a business transformation consultancy?" Um, you know, maybe I'm being a bit basic here, but uh, it sounds like a lot of buzzwords. What did he tell you about that? So, Sp- Spilver actually said to me that Ryan was pretty adamant that he wanted to launch this as part of the the Ryan Cap strategy, um, and that being business consultancies focused around business and technology transformation. So as I mentioned there, that that falls into that plan with a, you know, having a consultancy in the digital services marketing area. And Tightrope is essentially business strategy for that economy and a go-to location for businesses that want to thrive in that specific economy. Ryan called it a new type of consultancy, taking the best of the consulting and agency models and putting it into a single proposition and really kind of playing up on Stein's um, traditional strategic capabilities and integrating that into the kind of established agency knowledge. So I guess in some ways it is sort of similar to shadow boxer and in some way and and also um spilver said to me yesterday he said you know this could have been us so uh but you know i think shadow boxer the way they have gone is very much focused on venture creation um and the building out of brand strategy and design capability as well as kind of offering tech and business consulting um so the nature of this being a consultancy means that Ryan couldn't really share too much about what that means client side, but he also said they're working with some pretty recognizable brands and uh, everything that they do is going to be bespoke. So hopefully that clears up a little bit, but I remain a little bit confused also. Coming up next, we're going to take a quick look at TikTok as it launches a new brand experience and tries to appeal to marketers. TikTok went to market this week with its first TikTok World, a showcase of new products it hopes will push brands and marketers to embrace the platform to connect with its audiences. It included initiatives like TikTok Creator Marketplace, a self-serve portal that provides brands with access to a variety of creators. Emma, you spoke with TikTok's general manager in Australia and New Zealand, Brett Armstrong. Uh, What did he have to say about uh, the various things that they were launching? I did indeed. Brett said that TikTok has now really become established as a mainstream marketing platform in Australia and New Zealand. He's seen advertisers from sectors spanning from finance, media tech, retail, beauty, you know, really collaborating closely with TikTok um, to really drive innovation and creativity uh, in in the industry locally. Uh, he did say that he's seen a lot of large-scale brands advertise on the platform, you know, including the Maccas' um, 50th birthday, you know, what they did on, on the platform, which was amazing. Uh, and brands like Athletes Foot, Mecca and Afterpay um, have, have stretched that platform to develop bespoke campaigns um, that meet their needs as well. Yeah, I mean, look, it's unsurprising that TikTok would uh, throw in some big names and and drop some campaign pointers and, and things like that. Uh, I guess in a 
diverse media market like we have, it's unsurprising in a sense to see big brands dip their toe in and, and try uh, new platforms and, and try to gain uh, new followers on different uh, platforms in, in different areas. But uh, I guess the important thing here, particularly for TikTok, is how those brands and the media agencies that are representing them uh, see what TikTok is doing and, and relate to it. So, you know, I, I understand you spoke uh, with a few media buyers as well, uh, Wave Makers, Head of Content and Partnerships, uh, Shivani Maharaj and Digitas is Head of Social, Ashley Bruton. Uh, what were their thoughts on on this? Were they sharing, I guess, the same enthusiasm that, that Armstrong uh, was clearly sharing for it? Yeah, definitely. I think the two big things uh, that Shivani said she took out of the TikTok world presentation was very much around the, sh- the shopping side and the creative side. From the shopping aspect, uh, Shivani said it's almost the same as what Instagram has done with its shopping product, uh, but putting it obviously in the TikTok environment. Uh, the general vibe I'm getting from most people in the industry is that everyone is just, you know, was just kind of waiting for TikTok um, to release these products and it wasn't surprising that that was its next move. Uh, Shivani said for her client L'Oreal in particular, she sees TikTok's new products as almost a game changer, uh, especially that they can sell the product directly to the consumer. Uh, And then Ashley uh, also said that the number one thing she's seeing at the moment is these products that TikTok has launched far outweigh any sort of integrations with any other social platforms. In the fact that it's essentially an all-in-one service, uh, she said that creator marketplace makes it really easy to be able to find a really diverse variety of creators, especially when you look at the strength of the platform. Um, you know, it's such a diverse platform with all sorts of different content. This, she said, was one of the biggest issues with other competitors' platforms. It cuts out the need for any third-party influencer sourcing apps that have been around for obviously years uh, that's no longer needed. Another big benefit she's seeing that's worth noting Uh, with a lot of her larger clients is TikTok's elevation of its reporting metrics. She said back in the day, TikTok really was lacking in reporting and measurement. But now with the integration of the likes of Kantar and Nielsen, as well as Double Verify, um, there's just a lot more options now for larger clients that require some of these functionalities. Yeah, there's certainly a lot going on uh, around TikTok at at the moment, not least the somewhat uh, hilarious articles that seem to be popping up about uh, Donald Trump trying to convince Microsoft to buy TikTok while he was president of the United States. But that is a completely different story, just some interesting reading that you might find while you may be looking at other TikTok marketing content. But coming up next, Olivia is going to speak to ANZ's Kate Young. Joining us on the Mumbrella cast today is Kate Young, Senior Manager, Customer Centricity and Capability at ANZ. Kate, welcome to the Mumbrella cast. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Firstly, Kate, can I start off with a quick query about your role and what it entails and then also how you came to be in the role? Yeah, thank you very much. So my role is really focused on building capability for our marketing function, and that's across our entire enterprise. So the role has responsibility across our Australia business, our institutional banking business, and our New Zealand um, banking business. And really, it's about taking a step back and saying, what are the critical capabilities that are, that are required 
for ANZ marketing to be seen as a modern day commercially minded function? And also how are those capabilities playing a critical role in driving more customer centric outcomes? So that's really what the role is focused on. Uh, I started in this role back in 2019 and it was a newly created uh, role at the time under our CMO, uh, Shweta Mera. And really, she, I guess, came into the bank, um, you know, ex-Procter & Gamble, and really saw a critical need to transform the marketing function and to have it be much more insight-led um, and, and data-led and much more of a strategic function. And so with that in mind, you know, she established this team um, and I was lucky enough to uh, apply for the role and, and to be successful in, in heading up this um this team, and it's been a great journey um, over the last two and a half years. And so given that the aim of the team is is to make marketing more strategic and and more valued within the Mm. organisation, given the uh, 18 months that we've had and and obviously very difficult, uh, challenging market conditions, what what has been some of the, I suppose, significant challenges or, or opportunities that the marketing function has seen at ANZ during that period? I mean, look, it certainly has been a challenging, you know, 18 months. I mean, not just for ANZ, but I think for for all organisations. And I think the ones that have really uh, thrived and succeeded during this time are the ones that have taken a step back and and really focused on the customer. So I was just sort of talking about the fact that the role that I have in capability building is actually all focused around um, making sure that the marketing effort we direct, you know, is more tailored and more customer-centric and delivering uh, for our customers. With that in mind, the late last 18 months has really given us an opportunity to put our money where our mouth is. So, you know, we've been able to um, really think about what are the things that are going to be essential in helping our customers through this period. And, and for us, our purpose, you know, is really at ANZ, it's about helping people and communities thrive. And how that manifests from a customer centricity or a marketing perspective is really around financial wellbeing. So we've had a real opportunity over the last 18 months to put in place a number of initiatives that are really focused on making sure um, that our customers have the best level of financial well-being possible and that they are better off banking with us than with any other um, financial service provider. And, and how does the marketing function in particular assist in that endeavour? So we've been working through a number of initiatives. I mean, from its simplest form, it could be helping people with mortgage relief. It could be delaying payments so that people, um, you know, don't have as many financial commitments if potentially people are uh, between jobs or out of work. So we've put in place a number of things around rate reductions, mortgage relief, delayed payments, just a number of things to really make sure um, that our customers are able to get through this period. But there's also a number of other initiatives that we're putting in place, as I said, around financial wellbeing. So helping our our customers really understand, um, I guess, by taking uh, some surveys or or going through some diagnostic tools, where they sit on a scale of financial wellbeing and putting in place some practical suggestions that might help them actually achieve a better level of financial wellbeing in the future. And is ANZ utilising any external agencies as part of that, you know, you mentioned earlier transformation, Uh, how important are those external agencies when it comes to implementing these initiatives and campaigns? So we have a number of of agencies obviously on our panel that provide tremendous support to the team in terms of how we go to market. So, you know, we I wouldn't say that we are relying on them differently um, in the last 18 months to to what we have done uh, previously, 
but certainly we look at our, our agencies as partners, as extended members of the team, and they play a critical role um, in helping us, not only from a strategic perspective, but also from a go-to-market perspective. And you mentioned earlier about customer care and and that real focus on the customer. A a big part about what we're hearing at the moment is obviously about first-party data and and the importance and growth of using that data about customers to better service them. What's the approach at ANZ to that at the moment and, and what changes or initiatives are underway to improve or expand that? Well, obviously, you know, I mean, the entire industry is going through a dramatic change as it relates to how we use um, data. So, you know, we're not alone. We're not isolated. You know, everybody um, is having to pivot and change their strategies around their use of data and and um, and how that's used to go to market. So we don't feel as though we're, we're not at a um, competitive disadvantage in terms of the changes that are afoot. But of course, like everybody, it has uh, required us to pivot and to think differently um, about the use of data, how we collect it, uh, and how specifically it's used to ensure that we are delivering um, the most appropriate solutions for our customers. Uh, we're really, uh, you know, on a on a mission at um, at ANZ to ensure that we start to scale personalization as a capability, and marketing's certainly playing a critical role in championing that transition. So, you know, that um, I guess ambition and, and that project that we're working on around personalization almost goes hand in hand with some of the changes that are happening more broadly um, around um, the, the use of. Um, the use of data. So it's kind of quite fortunate in some elements in that as we start to think about personalization and the role that that can play in driving better outcomes for customers that we're actually able to think through that at the same time as more broader industry changes are afoot. Yeah, you mentioned there the uh, broader industry changes and obviously there's been a lot of <laughs> dialogue <laughs> and, and discussion about third-party data, et cetera, which we, we won't go into because that could take up the entire podcast. <laughs> um, but just just on, I guess, on a bank level, um, how significant is that to, to ANZ and also how is ANZ um, balancing those needs for obviously commercial outcomes but then the customer needs as well when it comes to data? Because it's a great question and I think, you know, banking's, banking's really fortunate because we have such rich data, which means that if we're actually really capable and really proficient at using it, we can be really smart about the way we target customers, but also the way we better understand them and their needs to anticipate those needs and deliver better experiences, better services, better products and propositions, you know, for them. So I, I, I think that the banking industry um as I said, is in a really fortunate position and that it is so data rich and that it can operate like that. Um, But I'm just sort of going to go take a step back and think about your question around sort of that balance between customer centricity um, and commerciality, because I think probably in the past, um, and I'm going back quite a long time, you know, the banking industry or, or indeed, you know, other industries might have felt that the two were somewhat mutually exclusive. Um, we don't, we don't operate like that at all. We know um, that if we are actually uh, delivering the best solutions for our customers, we are better understanding our customers and we're better able to deliver solutions for them that the commerciality comes naturally. So for us, the two are not incongruent. We don't look at one and say, if we deliver this for the customer, it's at the trade-off of commerciality. We we don't look at it like that at all. We say, if we do this for the customer and we're doing the right thing for the customer, we know naturally 
the commercials will follow. Interesting. And I noticed um, in a report that you published late last year about the future of marketing, you said that customers in the future will rely on AI and intermediaries for uh, purchase decisions increasingly in the future. Uh, How important is something like AI at the bank in terms of, again, delivering on some of those initiatives? Look, really important. As I mentioned, you know, we have a number of projects uh, underway at the moment around how we are are thinking through uh, the use of MarTech and indeed AI and machine learning in the future and how we will be able to deliver and scale personalisation as a capability. The report that you're referring to is actually a really important piece of research that I embarked on last year. And, And the reason behind that, if I can just take a step back, is because My role, as I mentioned, is really about thinking through what are the critical customer-centric capabilities that are required to be a modern-day commercially-minded function. But the reality is marketing and indeed the world in general is not static. Uh, In fact, we are moving into one of the most rapid periods of change that we have ever seen. And so for us, it wasn't just about saying, well, you know what, we've got a fantastic program in place that's helping build capability for our marketers today. It was also about us taking a step back and saying, what are those critical capabilities going to look like in the future? And how are we almost um, putting in place a two-speed strategy that says, we've got today sorted out, we're helping our marketers be terrific in the role they have today and for the world that we're operating in today. But more importantly, how are we making sure that we understand what the next two, three, five years looks like? What is that roadmap? And how are we putting in place reskilling and upskilling programs to ensure our marketers are able to respond at that point in time. And that's the world, Olivia, that you're talking about, which is where there is vastly more data and information available to customers. And quite frankly, um, you know, customers will will actually have probably um, more knowledge, data and information at their hands than will companies. And so that's where um, the world of AI and indeed intermediaries starts to play a really important role because with that overload of data and information, as we know, it's paradox of choice, uh, almost to some extent, it creates complexity. So we will start to see um, when that world um, starts to become more normalised, um, that people will start to use AI and indeed intermediaries to help them with their decision-making um, choices. And they will start to delegate some of that decision-making within that path to purchase um, and, and in, case, in some cases, almost automatically as well. So, so that's where it's really important for us as we're scaling personalization to be thinking about what that future looks like so that we can be prepared for it. Predicting the uh, next 12 months is uh, is a very uh, challenging uh, endeavor at the moment for any organization given the uh, environment we're in, uh, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. Mm. So I'm sure that there is plenty of work happening behind the scenes on that. Absolutely. That <laughs> um, just on that, you mentioned obviously upskilling uh, marketers within the organisation and I understand that you're also involved in a marketing master's program within the bank. Would you be able to tell me a little bit about that, why it's been implemented and, and what outcomes you've had yeah. to date with that program? Yeah, absolutely. So look, as I, as I mentioned at the start of this uh, discussion, I started in this role about two, two and a half years ago. And really what I came into was, um, I, I guess, an enterprise from a marketing perspective that was operating from a capability perspective quite inconsistently. 
So some divisions had certain capability frameworks in place, others didn't. There wasn't really any uh, consistent way of approaching capability uplift. And what we were hearing from our employees was uh, some dissatisfaction around how they navigate um, their career at ANZ, or, or maybe not dissatisfaction, maybe un uncertainty or a lack of clarity. And they were saying, you know what, ANZ is such a terrific place to work, but I'm just really having a hard time working out how I grow, how I develop, what I should be focused on, and, and potentially even what my career path is into the future. And so when we took a step back, we realised that what we needed to do was to build a program that was going to be enterprise-wide that really addressed that feedback from our employees. And that's really how Marketing Masters was established. We first of all went out and, and sought to understand global best practice around what were um, modern day commercially minded marketing functions grounded in, what were those critical customer centric capabilities, and what were the things that we needed to, put, needed to put in place at ANZ to ensure that we were going to be at the forefront of best and next practice. And so, at the backbone, I guess, of Marketing Masters is a capability framework. And that capability framework consists of 19 capabilities that span everything from insight generation all the way through strategic planning and prioritisation and, and then into execution. But more importantly, what we do is we've turned that framework into a program and it's an annual program. So every year at the start of our financial year, we ask our every marketer to undertake what we call a My Mastery Review, which is basically a self-reflection of their level of mastery on a three-point scale across those 19 capability areas. At the end of that process, a report is generated, which actually compares the expectations of their role with the way that they have assessed themselves. And that allows them to see both positive and developmental deviations. And that gives them a really clear uh, idea of the one or two capabilities that they need to focus on in the year ahead to be terrific in the role they have today. So that's really essential because that's creating that clarity and that transparency around all of that, um, th those insights or those challenges that our employers were facing into and saying, you know what, in the role you have today, it's these two things. In the year ahead, all you need to do is focus on these two things. What's really clever uh, about that tool is what sits in the background, which is a ginormous spreadsheet, which basically has every single marketing role across the entire enterprise mapped. So that, that basically by an expectation. So that's what creates that comparison for people. What we're actually doing this year, which is really neat, is we've created a curriculum-based diagnostic tool. So at the end of that report, not only will they know the one or two capabilities they need to focus on, we will also give them um, a suggested curriculum of what they should be doing um, in the next 12 months to actually build mastery in the capabilities they're focused on. So long answer to your question, but there's so much to talk about when it comes um, to the capability programs we have at the bank that, uh, that we've developed but hopefully that gives you a little bit of a, a taste of what the program's all about. Yes, that sounds fascinating and obviously great to hear of an organisation investing so much in its marketing uh, function and, and the individuals within it. Um, just on that, you mentioned obviously going off and, and the curriculum aspect. Is that predominantly then done also in-house within ANZ or do you tap external providers as well to assist yeah. in, the, in those uh, curriculums? So we, we, have, we have a blended approach, so we offer both. Um, the internal programs that we run are under an academy that we call our Brand Academy. So that's also a program that's that's run by myself and, and the team. And the Brand Academy is, is basically us 
pulling together a curriculum that focuses on what we call the ANZ way. So not only are we focused on core customer-centric capabilities, but we also build in a process that we expect um, ANZ marketers and indeed those beyond marketers, so our data teams, our technology teams, anybody involved in the process to be able to understand um, and implement in their job. So we're teaching people the knowledge we're also building skill in those workshops, so they are application-led um, workshops. We are teaching a process and we're also providing useful tools and frameworks that they can take back to their job. So that's sort of one component. That's, that's sort of the workshop uh, piece that we build ourselves internally. We don't build them for every single capability, every single um, one of the 19 capabilities. The ones that we don't have um, an academy workshop for, we support uh, with a variety of self-directed um, learning content through a variety of partners that we have. So that might be um, different types of, you know, short to long form con um, content, webinars, um, case studies, short form courses, etc. And we house it in what we call the My Mastery Library. So people can go onto our learning platform, they can look up the capability that they're wanting to focus on, and there's a whole library of curated content available for them to undertake um, in, in a self-directed fashion. Mm, that sounds great. Very, uh, very user-friendly for your team. <laughs> Um, and just looking ahead, I suppose, given that you've, you know, the bank has invested so much time and effort and, and obviously your uh, research as well is looking at what it takes to be um, best in class, not only now, but also in the future. What, what do you see as perhaps some of those key opportunities for the marketing function looking ahead at the next 12 to 18 months uh, for an organisation such as ANZ? Yeah, look, a couple of things that I'd like to talk about. So, you know, certainly what we know is that the profile of a top performing marketer is absolutely changing. So there's going to be a much greater focus on marketers who can blend, I guess, what traditionally has been called soft skills. Um, we'll probably call them non-technical skills because I, I think soft sometimes downplays those. So things like creativity, adaptability, um, resilience, um, innovation, empathy, ethics, those type of capabilities with new technical skills, so really improving sort of data and technology literacy. So certainly the way we believe marketing will go to market in the future is through cross-functional multidisciplinary teams that would be made up of traditional marketers, technology folk and, and, and data folk, and, and we believe our marketers will get a little bit closer to the data and tech teams. Our tech and data people will get a little bit closer um, to, to the marketing teams. But in order to be a successful marketer in the future, it really is about a balance of left and right brain thinking. So um, that's going to be critical and, and that's sort of the, the skills that we are starting to focus on in terms of programs we are looking to build as we start to go on that future roadmap or implement that future roadmap rather. Interesting. And are there any key, I suppose, um, act activities from a marketing perspective that you in particular are excited about or, or really looking forward to uh, working on in the next 12 to 18 months? So, Olivia, when you say activities, are you mean sort of campaigns or initiatives or are you mean yeah, sort of it could be an initiative or it could be a campaign specifically? Look, I think, you know, what's been exciting for us, as I sort of mentioned at the um, you know, at the start of this call, it's really around the work that we are doing on financial well-being. I mean, we, I think, are really pioneering or at least 
differentiate differentiating ourselves in a non-differentiated market with our you know brand strategy around financial wellbeing. We have a number of exciting uh, projects in the pipeline as we continue to um, evolve that offering for our customers. And I think certainly, you know, as we start to become more data literate as marketers and we start to understand our customers even more and be able to deliver personalization or even anticipation at scale, you know, we're going to be able to take that strategy to the next level. So I think for us, without sort of giving too much away, um, there's a number of things in the pipeline that we'll be focused on, on really accelerating what we're doing in that space. And in terms of, uh, you know, other organisations, if they were thinking about following a similar path to ANZ in terms of upskilling and future-proofing their marketing uh, divisions, is there any advice or any tips you would give in terms of embarking on that or the importance of that? I think, you know, what's really underpinned our program and what I believe has made us really successful is the fact that we really take Um, a research approach to how we build our capability program. So we are constantly, excuse me, constantly looking at global best practice, understanding what has worked for some of the best of the best. So when we start to, you know, implement or or think about um, how we mature or expand or evolve our programs, we go out and we do a bunch of research and we look at big organisations that have really established capability programs. So people like Unilever, people like Shell, people like P&G, and we take a step back and we say what's worked for them and why, Um, what lessons can we learn from them, and what are the things as a result of that that should, should form part of our roadmap into the future. So I think that that's a really critical discipline and something that I would recommend anybody who's embarking on this type of work to think about doing. But more importantly, I think, is the emphasis on the future. And it's really interesting. I was actually reading, I'm just going to go off track for a moment and, and then I'll come back and, and finish the answer to your question. But I was reading a really interesting um, article from in Innovation Oz on LinkedIn a few days ago. And um, they, they were using an, um, an example from um, a, Heming- a Hemingway novel um, called The Sun Also Rises. And in that, um, in that um, novel, they asked the main character how he goes bankrupt. And he says, um, gradually and then suddenly. And so not that I'm wanting to talk about Hemingway or novels or bankruptcy, but this concept of gradually and then suddenly, I think is a really, really salient point. And the reason being is because what is going to happen really, really quickly is that the capabilities that we have focused on building today, I don't want to say they will become redundant, but they will need to be evolved and iterated on very quickly. And so my advice to anybody embarking on a capability program today would be to be very aware of how suddenly the world of marketing is going to change and the requirements of a marketer are going to change. So I would be encouraging them to almost be building a program um, that is focused on going to market in two or three years' time as opposed to something that would be relevant for today would be my strongest advice. I think that's a lovely analogy you gave there from Hemingway. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, su- suddenly is, is very much in, in vogue at the moment. Things seem to happen very suddenly or not at all. So I think that's yeah. very wise, wise words. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us on the Umbrella Cast. Really appreciate your insights and look forward to seeing what else we uh, get from ANZ in the future on the marketing front. Thanks so much for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. Cheers.
And that's it for this week. Thanks again to our sponsor, Sesame, and a big thank you to Callum, Emma, and Liv for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Damo.